In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Most of our reactions to this image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd are often depicted in art and in other ways, more often than not, like this. Perhaps you have such a painting at home, or maybe you've seen one. Um, Jesus with a lamb, it's just a very comforting image. I've seen countless renditions of that in homes and offices and churches over the years. However, I can say that I've never seen one depiction of the biblical reaction to the conclusion of Jesus' teaching, which looks a little bit more like this. I've not yet seen someone with a picture of Jesus walking away as people pick up stones with a plaque under it captioned, The Good Shepherd. But that is actually the reaction of Jesus' teaching. And why is that? Why is that? We see that in verse 33, if we were to keep reading this morning, um, after that reaction in verse 31, which quite simply says at the end of this whole chapter on this teaching of Jesus as the good shepherd, the Jews pick up stones again, not the first time, again to stone him. And when Jesus says, and for what reason, what sign do you stone me? Their reaction is because you blaspheme. You, being a man, make yourself equal to God, in verse 33 we'd read. But that's really only a surface response. There's a visual reaction to who Jesus claims to be because of what it calls of them, what it asks of them. And I think that's true of us as well. We catch half of the picture of the Good Shepherd in this image of comfort, and so we should. But if we look at the whole picture of what Jesus is teaching here, it elicits a response from us as well. So I'd like for us to ponder that this morning. As we turn back to our text, let's go back to verse 22 in chapter 10 together and look at that, if we can find it. Here it is. All right. The response, or at least the biggest clue that we get, is found in verse 22. At that time, at the Feast of the Dedication, it was winter. We get a little bit of context there. Now, at the sake of boring you, I won't go into great depth and detail, but I think we do need to get a context for what that means. The Feast of the Dedication was an annual celebration in the life of Israel when um, the Jews would gather to celebrate God's great deliverance once more. That moment of deliverance is captured in the intertestamental books we call the Apocrypha and 1 Maccabees. It's there that as Rome is rising into power, um, and they're doing what Rome has done everywhere else on the face of the earth, they not only use military might to subdue the peoples that they conquer, but to also break their will further, they challenge whatever gods they have by asking and requiring them, at sure and certain death if they don't, to sacrifice to the emperor and the cult of the emperor in the Roman Empire. Now, when this meets the Israelites, obviously we know there's a problem. They worship the one true God. They're not going to buckle. So when they roll into town as a strong power move, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple as a throwdown challenge, so to speak, to the people of Israel, saying not only will you be under us, but now, look, sacrifice to um, our God, 
the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. The reaction was swift and decisive. In an almost a Phineas-type action, thinking back to the Old Testament, right, the Maccabean family leads a swift and certain revolt against Rome. This ragtag little band of folks gathers together and pushes the Romans back for a season in what could be a great movie trilogy if everyone picked it up. Um, it's a guerrilla warfare. It's, it's everything we like about the small versus the mighty. Um, and they push them back for a season. And when they do that, the final thing, according to the law, that must be done is that the temple must be rededicated for its use after it has been desecrated in this way. So that rededication is called the Feast of the Dedication. We know it as Hanukkah, and it's housed in those books. But unlike the Hanukkah that we know culturally, where there's gifts given and they light menorahs and they have dreidels, in those days, it was rife with imagery. It was tense in the air. People knew that with Hanukkah came remembrances of, yes, God delivered us in Thanksgiving. Yes, God's temple and worship was reestablished. But they're also thinking about kings, what makes someone a king, and ultimately the king of kings, their Messiah, who would come. The Maccabeans had taken a temporary role as, as kings of Israel for a season for their might and taking up um, against the Romans. But now they're looking for this Messiah, this king of kings who would be the established ruler. And so it's for that reason Jesus is well aware of what he's doing. He's finishing a teaching on the Feast of the Dedication in the temple, walking through the, the kind of the outer courts, if you will. And for that reason, it's so tense the people finally just call the question. So Jesus, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? We read in verse 24. Tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? As they're thinking on all these things. They know that they need someone to govern them. And they know that that's what they want. And so they're asking of Jesus, are you the one who we've been looking for? Now, I think this is important for us because ultimately when we think of the good shepherd, we think of the side of the shepherd that we see that, that guides us, that comforts us, and so we should. But anyone, especially in those days, and if you've spent any time around, let's put it in our context, in Texas, who's been around cattle or anything else, anytime you're working with uh, animals, you know that, yes, you do care for them, you do look after them, but you govern them, quite frankly. No sheep wakes up and tries to redirect the shepherd to another pasture. They try to, and they'll get quickly directed back to where they're going to go. If they want to stay out longer than they're supposed to, the shepherd's going to pull them back in. If they're not ready to get going in the morning, the shepherd ushers them out. Um, it, the shepherd quite clearly is in a place of governance and control because of his great care or her great care for their sheep. And that image, I think, is one for us to reflect on. Perhaps it's a first lesson for us to think about in terms of the Good Shepherd in our own context as well, because the Good Shepherd governs us too. Now, I would venture to say that our culture, more than any other culture on the face of the earth, does not understand that. Um, we get governance, yes. I mean, we just had a local election this past weekend. But our understanding as governance is that we can elect someone in, and then if we don't like what they do, there's lobbies, there's ways we can hold them to account. And ultimately, if we don't like the way they govern, we elect them out. In a sense, yes, we have people that govern over us, but we retain pretty much our own control. But what Jesus is talking about is not that. 
Jesus is talking about surrendering our control to be under his exclusive governance, just like a shepherd would be, which means that we kind of have to square up more often than not with the reality that if I'm going to come under the care of the good shepherd, if I'm going to see the benefits of the good shepherd, that I have to be willing time and time, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, to be able to surrender my will to the care and the governance of the will of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, it's not, uh, you know, a 50-50, 60-40, it's 100-0. There is no, there's no splitting terms here, um, and, and Scripture is clear about that. The imagery of death to self is used time and time again, and so we have to look at our lives and ask ourselves if we want the benefits to which we'll turn briefly that Jesus promises, we must also be obedient to bring ourselves wholly under his gracious care and trust that he actually cares for us and knows better than we do as to what we need at any given time. So let's look at what those benefits are. If we turn back to our text, um, we'll pick up, maybe, in verse 25. And in verse 25, we read Jesus' response. Remember, tell us plainly if you are the Christ, cut with the suspense, and Jesus is not dodging the question. I did tell you. I've told you. And I've told you, and I've told you, and I've told you through parables, through images, through plain teaching. And so more words will not do. And so Jesus says, if you won't believe my words, then at least believe my works that attest to who I am. But if you don't believe, it's because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, Jesus is pressing ever farther into dangerous territory. If he was playing it safe, he would stop right at verse 26 and let it hang. But he picks back up this discourse of the good shepherd one more time to punch home what he's trying to communicate. Namely, that if you really want the benefits of a shepherd, a good shepherd, you must respond to the voice of the good shepherd. You must square up to what the good shepherd's calling you to do. And if you don't, it's probably because you're not really part of the good shepherd's flock. Those are I mean, it's no wonder we see where this reaction is mounting as he's winding up this image, right? And so as this winds up, unfortunately, in our context, we spend our time in verse 26 and 27 usually doing one of two things, both of which are great sermons for other days. Um, one is we want to define who's really in and out of God's flock and what does that really mean and, and, and who's, you know, how do we really know if they respond to the shepherd's voice. So that's one conversation worth our attention another day. The other is how do I know the shepherd's voice um, and, and listening to him, a great topic for another day. But for our purposes today, the plain, simple thing that we see in the text is really quite simple, that if we want to be governed by the good shepherd, we have to respond to his invitation. We have to respond to his voice. Um, and, and it's as simple as that. So as we go through this life, if we're not hearing his voice, it's probably because we've not fully responded or we've, we've drifted to an extent that we've missed his voice. Um, and so we have to spend some time thinking about if we want to receive the benefits of being under his care, then we must respond to what he says. What he says is, is plainly laid out in scripture as to how we order our lives. Um, and if we're missing those things, uh, to an extent, we're, we're, we're truly missing out on the full benefit that he gives us. 
So again, it kind of goes back to that square one. Uh, if we want to be guided and governed by the Good Shepherd, we must quite simply respond to his call to come under his care. Now, the, the promise, the full benefit, is actually found here at the end of our reading, in verse 28 and following, right? Um, and it's this, I give them eternal life. Not just, I'll be your Messiah for my lifetime, or I'll set up um, a new lineage with my kingdom and then my sons and so on and so forth. They've seen how that worked. Um, after Solomon with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, I mean, that just you know, digressed quite quickly. So it's not that. It's not even, I'll take care of you until you depart this life. No, Jesus goes all the way over to, I'll take care of you forever. Forever. Because they haven't seen it yet here, but because he triumphs over sin and death, as we remember, in Eastertide. That's a, that's a bold claim, and it's worth thinking. You know, while we think about images that, that we wrap our mind around, we, we have to remember that what Jesus is saying is, I have no rival. I have no equal. No one can stand against me. Satan is our adversary, not Jesus. I mean, there is no one, there is no one and nothing that can stand against him. Why? Why can he make a claim like that? Because I and the Father are one. And with that, there's the punchline, and they pick up stones. Because if, if you believe what he says, there is no other way to come under the care of God apart from Jesus. And so by saying that, they have to square up, not just a, a theological term, but now their feet have to move with it, their hearts have to move with it, and it requires something of them. Quite simply, um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a final lesson for us to ponder. It's about our proximity to the Good Shepherd at all times. Now remember, according to the law, it would be much easier to live according to the law. It's external. Um, do these things, check these boxes, but really my heart can be over here, but my actions can be over here, right? When I actually have to square up heart, body, and soul with the great commandment you hear every week, there is no wiggle room. And if that's the case, then our proximity to Jesus day in and day out is what keeps us under his care, but also what carries us into his presence. And not just eternal life someday, not just hope for that in the future, not just one day when all things will be well, which they will be, but the promise of Easter is that Jesus is present with us now in everything we do. And if that's true then we walk with him each and every day because we know that the fullness of that promise will be received, but we already have received the promise now. There's nothing more, nothing left. He's given us all of that. And so we have to ask ourselves, will we come fully under his care? Will we respond in such a way? And will we remain in proximity to him? Here's a hard word coming out of this season we've been in, church. I think we've gotten subconsciously more attuned to doing what we want, when we want, and how we want. Curbside service, um, picking things up on our terms, doing these things when we want to do them. We don't think about it, but we've kind of ported that into every aspect of life. That doesn't square up with the Lordship of Jesus. What squares up to the Lordship of Jesus is, I recognize you are king, I bring myself under your care, and I will respond daily to what that means um, and, and what that looks like. In this season, you know what we need most as a church? Your feet. We need you here teaching Sunday school. We need you um, at Bible studies because you have something to share that God reveals to you. We need you serving on Sunday mornings. We need your voices in the choir. 
We need you to be a part of this church and this life because God's given us everything we need in the body of the faithful here. And what that is is it responds in a way that it aligns our hearts to what we proclaim, not just with our lips, but with our lives. So may we spend some time and sit with that this Easter. And then may God move our feet into that response because we don't get any wiggle room. Our response is we either pick up stones and throw them at him and say, nope, I'm good, I'm on my own. Or we kind of kick the stone down the path a little bit. I'll square up with that later on my own time. Or we pick up our heart and we bring it to the good shepherd, trusting, knowing, and believing that there is no one, not even myself, ourself, who can tend to us better than he can. And if that is true, that should be our response for our own soul's health and for the soul's health of those that we interact with. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.